Welcome back to season three of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. In this series of podcasts, we will be highlighting some of the presentations from the January 2020 San Francisco Digital Orthopedics Conference, otherwise known as DOCSF. It was presented in partnership with the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. We'll also bring you presentations from DOCSF Berlin, our first international conference, created in partnership with our friends at Frontiers Health. The theme for both conferences was Execution is Everything, and the goal was to focus on what it takes to bring digital health technology to musculoskeletal care. The conferences had three broad sub-themes, the inpatient environment, the outpatient space, and system-wide tools. This is episode four of season three of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. In the three prior episodes, we brought you outstanding interviews with Dan Kendall from Digital Health Today. We were so fortunate to have him with us again at DocSF and grateful he conducted those insightful conversations. Now we bring you the presentations from the DocSF conference itself. We begin with the first of our two DocSF keynotes. DocSF is famous for bringing outside thinking to our healthcare audience, from the CEO of Niantic, Think Pokemon Go, speaking about how to scale augmented reality to change behavior, to the chief product officer of Under Armour, speaking about how their sportswear company is becoming a data company with 230 million people on its platforms. DocSF shows our audience what others are doing with digital tools outside of healthcare. For 2020, our first awesome keynote was Gary Kovacs. When I interviewed Gary about this role, it was clear that his depth of understanding of what it takes to execute a strategy was exactly what we needed to kick off DocSF with a bang. Gary is asked to speak frequently at Davos, the World Economic Forum, and TED. He has led companies to major exits and run large divisions of the largest tech companies like, for example, IBM. Gary gave an outstanding presentation. Let's join him on stage at DocSF 2020. Well, good afternoon. I am standing here in front of you because of that, man, so I can do this. Because at the end of April, I had my knee replaced. So that's why I'm here. No. <laughs> so thank you for the lovely introduction. It always sounds better than when I think about it myself, but it's been a really interesting journey. And when I was talking to Stefano, he said, how would you describe the world today? And I, I said, ordered chaos. And he just looked at me and he said, can you talk to us about ordered chaos? And we determined... It's not actually ordered chaos that we want to talk about. It's how you make your way through ordered chaos. And then I realized that is actually effectively how my career has gone. We've started things, a multiple founder, and we rode that up, but none of them were typical businesses and we didn't implement typical leadership styles. So that's what I'm here to share today with you. It's called Chaos and Order in Perfect Balance. It is not always perfect. To start, Stefano just mentioned, please tweet. So I'm going to give a little caveat to that. Please tweet responsibly. And the story that I like to tell is when I became CEO of Mozilla, and we're just a tiny little thing, and we had big aspirations to take on the world. And who here used the Firefox browser at some point? Yes. What the hell's wrong with the rest of you? <laughs> and I took this over, and we had this foundational belief in Mozilla that is going to be the community 
it's not going to be just us that builds something. So we tore the walls down to the entire company. And one of the covenants or the tenets, if you will, of how we ran the company, we called it a project to start with. So how we ran the project was we would be completely transparent. It's formed my belief now that 99% of everything in business is not confidential. It's just to assume power. So we just started sharing everything, salaries, and I know there's lots in the health space as well. Forward looking, when I ran a public company, you obviously can't project your, release all your projections, et cetera, but for the most part. So I started just sharing my agenda online. And it turns out one of the incoming emails that I got was from Mark Zuckerberg and he said, hey, welcome to Mozilla, blah, blah, blah. And come on over at some point and you know, we'll just get acquainted. So two weeks later I went over and I told everybody this in the community. Two weeks later I went over, had a wonderful conversation. This was early, early days. They didn't have all their big buildings. They didn't have all their processes and it was chaotic. So I came back the next Monday, all hands, including the community. Somebody asked me, hey, how did the visit to Facebook go? And I said, a little bit like clown school, to be honest with you. Tweety, 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 tweet. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. Next thing you know, I'm getting a phone call from Mr. Zuckerberg now. What the F? This is no way to start a partnership. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, clown school? So I stepped back and I got a big shirt and it said, tweet responsibly. And on the back it said, or do not tweet. So we got a little equation, man. I could tell you all kinds of stories and everything, but some of them are going to be colloquial. <laughs> Please tweet responsibly. <laughs> or I could just stick to the script and that's not going to be much fun. Anyway, with all that long preamble, thank you for having me. I thought we'd just go through a bit about me to set the stage for why I'm interested in the things that I am. Context for the world and how it's actually operating, which is fantastic. And then the new world defined, and then how does execution happen? And we, at every company I've run, have stuck to the same five rules. And I tried to synthesize them, and I'll share those with you today. First of all, I've spoken to TED, been to Davos six times. I've spoken keynotes all over the place. Somehow I was super nervous at coming to speak to a group of medical professionals because I don't speak the language. I don't say, even legal, I have more of the lingo, juxtaposition, henceforth, wherewithal. I don't have any of that. So I went through a list, I go, well, what am I really doing here? And I'm like, and I had to remind a doctor, no, no, no. PhD, no. Am I coming down with something? No, I had a pretty good sleep, I'm feeling pretty good. Do I want to party like a medical student? No, and I don't think that's this conference. So the only viable reason that I could come up with that I'm here is I stayed there two nights ago. Thank you for getting it. Do you know how hard it is to find medical jokes? Anyway, my story starts not in technology. I went and did a lot of school once I figured out my way. That's me on a telephone pole in northern Canada where I lived. And now, the high potential people, they made them climb poles because that's really... And at January 4th, minus 32 degrees, close to the North Pole, I gaffed into a big piece of ice. You can climb on ice. You just can't climb on ice when it falls. 32 feet up, came crashing down, and I hit the ground with such a force. And the first thing I knew to do was to move my toes after I came to. The second thing I knew to do, because it was frozen tundra, they put coal down so they can dig the hole, and the coal heats the ground to make it soft enough. S problem with that, of course, is when I'm sitting on it unconscious, coal burns through my rear end. So that woke me up. Second thing I needed to do was get up. See the order? Toes, stand, up. 
And at that point on February or January 7th, I walked into the headquarters of the telephone company up in Canada, AGT at the time. And I found the first high rise building I was ever in. I found HR and I resigned. And the lady comes out and she says, why are you resigning? I said, well, here's all the story. I'm going to go back to school. She goes, well, but it's January. I said, yeah, but I'm just going. Anyway, long and short of it is that was my inflection point. It was a moment that I just couldn't do what I'm doing anymore. Had to make a change. And she looked at me and said, can you give me a minute? Brought in another person. And the two of them cornered me and said, you're obviously a high potential person. We're going to privatize. And so we need to send some people back to engineering school to help build our management ranks from within. Would you be like to be a candidate? And I'm like, there has to be cameras. This is a joke. And I said, high potential. I climb poles. How do you know that? And her answer was, well, you're sitting here, aren't you? And I just thought, yep. And that way, then I got paid for four years to go back to engineering. And that became one of several degrees. But I did it not because I had this conscious thought. I always thought I'd go back to school but because something changed in my life. And that inflection point, an unforeseen or discontinuous event that changes the way we think and act. I would argue in business, in technology, in anywhere, it is value is only created at an inflection point. It is realized all other times. And I know, and I have had friends, unfortunately, that have had medical conditions, sudden medical events, they might have whatever they're going on. They might not like their weight. They might not like their life. They have a heart attack. They come to, they save. And then they do all of those things they've been planning to do for five, 10 years. Inflection point, just changes, discontinuous act. It's important because we're going to put today in context of a few very significant inflection points that have helped us all. The other side of it is, that's me, number of careers. The second one, probably most, we tried to map the human brain and put it into software. We got two years into it and it was acquired by Salesforce, but we didn't make a lot of money because we didn't understand, we understood ideas. I didn't understand, hey, you got to actually make some money. So as I went through there, what's important as I, obviously, as I look, I go, geez, I can't hold a job. So that's point number one. Point number two is when I started, when I left IBM in 2000, internet population was 248 million. It is 4.9 billion today. So as I said, the first thing was, geez, I can't hold a job. The second thing, of course, that given a business mind, I wanted to really test against this is if that's the internet growth, and that's the curve. How does my earnings over the years map to that? Not so good. We just didn't, <laughs> it doesn't follow that curve. But the point of this is 5 billion people today are on the web. And there's a reason I'm putting the web in context today. You guys all know the web. This isn't a web update seminar. This is to put in context how we as humans, business, personal, and in every realm behave. And I think it's quite remarkable how it maps. 255 million websites added last year and 1.7 megabytes of new data per person per second around the world get added to the web. So that has to save somewhere. 500 typed pages per person per second. Pretty remarkable. But those are the statistics. What are the behaviors that have come as a result of that? First of all, if you, anybody remembers back in the 90s and the 2000s, and the web's not that old, we had talked about internet speed. Well, let me just put in context what internet speed is. It took 22 years for the first 2 billion people to connect on the internet. 
And the graph there is total websites, and it's about 650 million at the time. We thought that was internet speed. That destroyed companies. It destroyed economies. It changed cities. It changed education institutes. 22 years for the first 2 billion. The next 2 billion took five years. So if we thought that was internet speed, I mean, it's just not even, not even reasonable. And so if you think just about how everything behaves and how execution happened 40 years ago, there's no possible way that that works at this speed. And we, the most significant is we, all of us are changing. As we're a little older, we feel a little bit more the kids today. They don't even, it's just what they come into. But we're not only changing ourselves, we're changing what we do and where we do it. So very high level. Remember search? That was the primary feature of the internet. We are moving from search, connecting to information, to connecting to each other. But what has to happen on the internet or in technology when two people connect with each other, something's got to take a picture and make an interpretation of what is happening. There. And those records are created. We are moving from 420 million notebooks, desktops, sold in 2012 to everywhere. 1.6 billion smartphones sold in 2018. And in 2018, just as a frame of reference, half the number of laptops sold. This isn't a statement of notebooks versus, they'll both coexist. It is, we are pushing, and this is a key thing here, we are pushing information, we are pushing decisions further and further and further to the end point of society. And if I look and I get asked this all the time is what's one of the biggest differences that you understand is going on in the corporate world or any other world that's a institution? Decisions have moved from central to the edges, facilitated by the internet. Content is changing too. These were the articles. In 1999, 90, nearly 100% of all online content was media created. Today, over 80% is user-generated. You and I are generating. Now, Charlie bit my finger. I can't verify that that is valuable content. And not all of it is, but nobody's choosing what is valuable for you anymore. You're choosing. Now, apparently, what, six billion of you chose that as valuable content. So what can I say? Our identity is probably the most fascinating part of this. Remember our identity, people would say, hey, what's your name? I go, Gary Kovacs at 22 Millican Drive. That was our identity. That was the label. That's how people identified with us, verified where we were, knew where we lived, stationed in life, whatever it happens to be. Then we moved to our phone number. Nobody talked about their street address anymore. It was like 222-3874. Then we moved to an email address. Hey, people say don't give me your digits anymore. They're just like email or Insta or whatever it happens to be. So now it's back to phone again which is interesting, but here is where it is. So your identity's moved away from a physical presence or a device, and it just lives in the ether. Think about the impact, kids understand this, what's your presence on the internet? How is it defined? Is it consistent? When I was on 22 Millican Drive, people could drive by and see the house. They could just know from the neighborhood roughly what to associate with me. Now, who the hell knows? Does anybody know even anywhere somebody lives anymore. Here is both the challenge and the incredible opportunity. Who we are has fundamentally changed. And the internet, along with it, has evolved from the most important information network ever in the history of the world to now the most important connection network in our world. Which means, and if I leave 
this section with one major point. I'd say these next two slides have fundamentally changed any way that I look at business or the world or inventing things or filing patents or anything. The world, media, everything looked like this, probably just prior to 2000. Just think about your own institutions, think about any corporation. There was a strategic planning department. There was an office in the corner with that beautiful hushed air conditioning and the thick carpet. And that's where decisions were made. Then we had communication strategies to push that information down. Not all of it, because I gotta, you know, I gotta keep some of it. We push it down, push it down to people so they can do whatever they do on those other floors below me. That's corporation. Think about how information transmitted the world. It can't be like New York Times or the US government would do whatever they do, come up with what information. They had official channels to publish information. You had to go look and be on an official channel. Does anybody here think our current president has an official channel? I don't think, yeah, it's whatever. And whether you love him or hate him, what I really find fascinating is there's a lot of criticism. His use of Twitter, I was like, and right from the very word or start of it, I was like, hold on. There is no filter. Well, he doesn't have a filter, but leave that aside. There is no filter between what the president of the United States thinks and acts and what he now wants to say. Yeah, that comes with its challenges and certainly the author of whatever the channel is in this case, and there's lots of people, there's actors and actresses and other Kardashian types that you know also don't have a filter, but wow, look at the difference. There's no filter, there's no official channel. So the world today is this. It is a interconnected set of endpoints. Information flows sideways. 90% of it's created by you and I. So where's the official channel in any corporation or government or health institution for that? It's phenomenal how this has changed and the speed, back to the speed chart, has happened over 10 years. That's why so many people are feeling displaced. Where do I go for the news? I don't know. How do I know the news is real? Five years ago, I didn't even know Breitbart existed. Three years ago, I'm forwarding links, I'm reading things. It's just phenomenal and I don't even know. So the question then becomes, how do you innovate and execute in a complex, changing, ever-evolving chaos or whatever buzzword you want, but in today's world? The model has changed. So this gets to the rules. We spent a lot of time thinking about this at a lot of different companies and I'll overlay this back on a Mozilla. Just the statistics of Mozilla, we went from 17 million users, which sounds like a lot, particularly back then when the internet was only less than half the size. And within two years, we went at 552 million users around the world. We had 80% of the market in Germany, for example. And we operated in 176 countries over a two-year period. That's how growth was. The great news about that is we, we went from zero revenue a billion, and then <laughs> that was nice, paid for a lot of fancy coffee machines. When Mozilla grew, we realized two things, is we'll never be able to grow the number of people coding or testing this browser to support. We operate in 512 languages. Do you even know there's 512 languages in the world? Yes, probably, but 
And so we couldn't verify or localize any of this stuff. So we started building a community. And at the time, we had about 1,000 employees, 800 of them were developers, and we had 52,000 free active contributors to the Mozilla project. It is the definition of that move from hierarchy. Think about 20 years earlier. We would have been thinking how fast we hire. We just put the call out and people associate because they believed in the mission back up to the higher calling. So the 50,000 people became our army and it became how do you communicate and grow? And that's the essence that made us just step back and say, wow, everything I ever learned in MBA school, that's just not going to apply here. Mm -mm, nothing. I went back through some of those textbooks, you know, like I literally, that I loved it at the time and I reread them at this, facing this problem. And I went, really? It just can't work today. So we spent a lot of time with somebody named Jeffrey Moore and the Harvard Business School and visiting strategic professors at Oxford. And we put it all together because they believed in the mission. And we said, okay, how do we operate here? And we came up with, it was called 12 rules at the time that I really distilled into five that formed the way we operate and I've operated ever since. And I can tell you, we've scaled companies faster than anything I could ever believe because I haven't had to do it. The other part of that hierarchy, just to spend a second on it, is it is a hub and spoke model. If everybody comes to me with their information and then I distribute it out, guess what happens? I better be right 100% of the time. And my memory better be perfect. And I better not have an off day, otherwise whatever I explain to you and then I explain to you are gonna be different. So I'm nearly perfect, but I, I'm not sure I could say the same for all of you. No, it's, and that's a, just think about that model. It's a disastrous model. I can't remember yesterday, <laughs> but we distilled them down to these new rules. And here's rule number one. They seem so obvious, but operating against these rules is very rare even today. This one, is the guiding principle. Everything, everything, everything is open. Information is no longer equal to power. And everybody in this room, I would posit, has the same access to the world's information. It's called Google, it's called whatever you use. So when I was going through my master's thesis, I did a great job. My number one skill set was charming the two librarians. It was a him and a her so that I, they'd show me how to use microfiche and they'd show me, and if there's one journal, they would reserve it for me and nobody else got it. And so my paper would be better relative and we're on a grading scale. That was my number one skill, irrelevant. Everybody has the same information. So we've moved as a result of this openness from synthesizing information to making meaning out of unlimited information. And I speak at a lot of colleges and a lot of schools now. It's um, sort of some, one of the things I enjoy. And I get asked, what kinds of jobs, if you're going into technology, would you be looking for today? And I said, well, it wouldn't be cataloging information. It wouldn't be doing what everybody else can do. And engineering is a great profession, but it, you know, if you're C coding, you could be replaced. Making meaning out of information, turning that into crystals of knowledge that we can execute against is really hard and really rare because everybody has the same information. So it's not a differentiator anymore. This house, by the way, I did a three-day stint to this house. It's in New Canaan, Connecticut. It's called the Glass House. It was a very famous architectural house. And we wanted to understand how people lived when everybody could see everything. And in there, that little curtain is new, but even the bathrooms don't have walls. They have walls, they're just glass. Now, the house is a little setback from the street, but it was just a fascinating 
nobody was living there at the time. They had this little research thing going on. And it took about half a day for people to not realize they were in a glass house. And then life normalized over about a four-day period to the exact same way they would live in a normal house, which stands a logic test. I don't know whether the timing, I'm, I'm surprised by that or not, but think about it. So we normalize to whatever situation we're in, except when we have this historical bias. So the older we get, it's logical to say we have a whole historical bias. You know, put my grandparents in that house and they probably would never normalize to it. You know, put kids in that house, I don't even think they'd care. It's really remarkable. And so with openness is everything, at a certain point after we've had some success in career, we got to shake ourselves out of it to believe that we can't hide anything. The so what of that is all the secrets that come out. How did that ever get released? How is it really? You tell two people, they tell two, they tell five, social media, anonymous, whatever. Information is everywhere. I can look up any, I can find salaries on anybody, how much money they made, how much they paid, doesn't matter. So then it becomes the social structure as well as the decision-making process changes fundamentally. This one, a little bit more to it, but Stanley McChrystal started the McChrystal Group, obviously, and came up with something that I thought was a good synthesis of what we were working on. We spent a lot of time, weeks, on a model of how we should build Mozilla and then AVG afterwards and how we can get leverage without scaling up by dollar. So, but this ties right in, and this was our founding principle. We cannot ever, 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 ever have a traditional business and a traditional business structure. And so the evolution was command and control, top-down structure. We've talked about that. And the currency in almost any business or institution is information. So think about what we just talked about. Almost everybody has perfect access to information. And I know what everybody's thinking. Well, not the stuff I read. Oh, yes, they do. And so information is a currency, but now everybody has perfect access. So the command and control, think about how governments have changed. They cannot control what people see. People have an ability to make an opinion and a point of view previously unheard of. So they can start testing, pushing back, disagreeing, checking. They form an opinion all by themselves. The opinion doesn't need to be formed for them if they want. And it's really a foundational change. And the second is command of teams. So instead of hierarchies, and sometimes in, when I worked at IBM, there were 11 layers before it got to the manager level. Somebody has information, strategy group, uh, vetted by the CEO. Think about by the time it gets to 15 layers down the organization, they're saying, you know, the derivative of the strategy for launch into parent, blah, blah, blah. 15 layers down, it's like there's new bubble gum in the vending machine. That's what they get. That's all they get. I walked by that. They got, they got Dr. Pepper in there now. And they wonder, how did we not execute? So the point of this is the ownership of information is not just to understand it's everywhere, but it is to give context. So rather than sharing information, we're sharing context. Why is that important? So command of teams and then this team of teams. What's fascinating is the leaders in the middle of that. Third, foundational principle. Independent thinking is the only way to win. It kind of sounds like an obvious thing, but I'll explain it. The reason is, and this is not a stock or an economic statement, consensus is already priced into the market. And that's in quotes because it's metaphorical and, and philosophical rather than actual, although it is actual too in some. What I mean by that, 
In here, what we did at Mozilla following this is we traveled to regions of the world to understand how life is changing now with the internet. And it, it was just mind numbing. This is in Nigeria. This is in a market and they have all their produce. The farmers of those different pieces of produce, they would walk up to four hours each way, three times a week to sell their goods into the market, have their money, bring it back to their family or their village or wherever they're delivering it. So that's an eight hour walk. So they knew the direction of the market. They knew who was buying. They knew who controlled the market. They would walk in that direction four to six hours. They would get to the market. Here you go. And whoever was making that market would say, I'll pay you 20 cents or I'll pay you $4 or whatever. No power of understanding. Whatever they paid, what am I going to do? Walk another four hours? Forget it. I want 25 cents. Nah, I'm going. No, you're not. You see the leverage of these people. So what was mind-numbing, they didn't move from this market. They all had car batteries that powered mobile phones that were connected to this network and they were getting spot prices by text from any market within a six-hour walk. Think about that. It's mind-numbing. So when we started talking to the villagers, we built case studies and published them all. Their economic input increased thousands of percents in the course of a week, or sorry, a year. The second thing they got to do is until the market was made, they didn't, they didn't have to go anywhere. So they were going down at two walks a week for thousands of percents, many orders of magnitude, more money from one simple thing that connected it. So it's not an internet story. It's think about how society changed. So that one was, when I say everything has to be original thought, Offering something very similar, price per bushel, it's already priced into the market when you have perfect information. So where they went to, and I forgot to mention this on the last slide, and I don't want to go back because I'll mess it up. They were starting negotiating. And then some of the vendors are going, you know, I'll meet you halfway. Hey, I got an ox and a cart, or I got a truck. I'll come and get it from you. F-O-B-U. Think about all that change. So the, the consensus is already priced into the market. There's no differentiation. So how do you add to that? And that stands in any industry, in any business, because of perfect information. The fourth, now we're getting into much more tactical, is argue the assumptions. Only, never argue the outcome. Because whatever outcome you want, I can give you a set of assumptions that can make that true. I don't know where we'll get there. And there's so many great examples, but we had a situation at AVG, and thankfully we went public and then got acquired. So that was it. But our assumption at year two of this business was this is going to commoditize much. It was consumer internet security, and then we did mobile security, and then we did web security. And we actually ended up having one of our biggest growth spurts was in medical security. Just the way our technology worked was able to pass a lot of the government standards. So but our biggest business, we had a million downloads a day, consumer security around the world. We had offices in 26 countries. We just got it all scaled up, all that cost, all how big that is. And then we just sat down and said, what are our assumptions? And we said, we didn't have one around how fast technology is going to change. So we made one. And our assumption was within the next two years, big companies are going to move in. There's going to be mass consolidation tremendous price pressure. And if we believed that assumption, we stress tested it, 
we have to change our cost model right now. Not tomorrow, right now. We did a huge undertaking. Put that in a little container on its own, ran that as just a operational center that produces revenue, and then we doubled down on the high growth areas that have much more defensible space, health, mobile, a bunch of these other things. And it was right. Just a little less than two years later, we were acquired for nearly double our market cap. And they put three companies together, mass consolidated, ripped out all the cost structure. You know, everybody was like, wow, that happened quickly. They got all that done in six months, closed all those other businesses. And they make tons of money because they mass consolidated. So on a mass consolidation, girth matters, except for right here. So had we not sat down, because our outcomes were fantastic. We're making our quarterly revenue targets. We're projecting to the street. Our stock price is doing well. It's fantastic. Focusing on the outcomes is irrelevant. So there's a thing called the outcome blind approach. If you don't think about the outcomes, where do you think your assumption set will get you? And then you just follow it. And then when you finally get that conclusion, you look at it and go, well, then what are we playing for? Ooh, do they match? And if they don't, you got work to do. And so that led us really concretely to change the business. I mean, fundamentally change that we closed down a $140 million division within three weeks as a result of changing assumptions. So the outcome blind approach leads to real time decisions daily without attribution bias. And what attribution bias knows, and I, and I think you all know this is, this has worked for me in the past. I attribute this behavior to that outcome or that outcome to this behavior. Therefore, it's going to work in the future. I'm biased. Irrelevant. It does not work today. And there's so many good examples, but I love this one, which is the fifth speed over time. And what I mean by that, executing, adapting in real time is the new strategy. Strategy and execution and operations are linked inextricably and tightly. What I love about this is Nokia. So look at this cover. Forbes magazine on their uh, OPK, Oli Pekka Kalavuso. Oh, power. One billion customers. I love that. Can anyone catch the cell phone king? Now, I met him too many times. That guy, his ego could not fit in this room. Can anyone catch the cell phone king? He, I mean, it's on every wall. It's on his kids' headboards. He gave signed copies to all anybody he came across. 1960, the company was founded long before this, but in 1960, 1960 is when they first got into radio mobile communications. By 2007, they came out with a couple of their first cell phones, and they were called cell phones at the time. And then this magazine cover came out in 2007, and it was a straight lineup. So many of these executives became billionaires with a B. By 2011, the market cap was 1,008th of what it was in 2007. 2012, the company was closed and sold to Microsoft. 2013, the brand name was retired. 100-year-old company. Top of the world in 2007. Dead four years later. What they had, what was remarkable, what's notable here, see the inflection point, 2007? They didn't create that inflection point. What came out in 2007? The iPhone. And everybody laughed at it. They sold a million iPhones in the first year. But what it did is it gave the world an opportunity to see what could be possible. The vision. Nokia 
had the world cornered on touchscreen and smartphone technologies and patents. Cornered. Apple had very little. They just didn't look at it. They were addicted to their outcomes and they prioritized, hey, this should go for a long time. And when the postmortem was written on this, what they found was they had all these great planning sessions, came out with all these ideas and outputs, and it didn't get implemented because of the politics inside of Nokia. Where should that fit? That should be in your division, my division. Think about the ridiculousness of that. So when you have people like Steve Jobs that come forward and they just stand there and go, no, I'm not doing that. Or Elon Musk is my favorite these days. People say, oh, that guy's crazy. Of course he is. <laughs> Thank God he's crazy. When the first Tesla came out, Toyota had moved over to hydrogen technology. Said battery technology is dead. And they were the leading investor in electric cars at the time. The Prius was out. They said battery technology is dead because the infrastructure to place these in public power, impossible legislation, legal, everything else. Wow. How wrong could they be? So somebody came and just said, no, nah, I don't believe it. This is this new world order. And how did Elon Musk communicate? Twitter. Random stupid stuff. We're going private for 420 because he happens to be higher than a kite with a with a Vancouver <laughs> grunge star. Now, I'm Canadian. Don't associate me, please. <laughs> Speed over time. So executing, adapting in real time is the new strategy. Strategy is not once a year. Strategy is not once a quarter. Strategy, is strategy and execution plans and testing assumptions are every day. But we got to listen. Finally, because people like concrete examples, at the current company, this is what it all looks like. It's one page. This is our board deck. Clear timeline and check-in points. Horizon 1, 2, 3, 0 to 12 months, 12 to 36, 36 plus. We have a simple theme for each. This is a big company. We provide software to 372 of the 500 biggest cities in the United States and 2,200 others. We power the certification for, I can't remember how many hospitals and medical institutions. We do all the Uber certification, most of United States cannabis registration from grow to somebody said grow to blow. I was almost going to say that because, but I, they have some better terms for it. Trust me. And this is it. So here's what we are trying to achieve. Simple theme measured by clear outcomes and then really frequent communications. This is online and a collaborative. Everybody in the company and our partner world can see this. Our competitors can see it. And if you see today, there's that line. Every time I present, we do a monthly company all hands. We just move the line. Nope, here's what we say we'll do. We're here. How do we do? What else do we need to do? And then we, at every board meeting, we present this, we present the financial results, and then we debate like crazy people, the market assumptions, the technology assumptions, the people assumptions. And when you start getting down to that level of detail, if we grow to this next level, when we go into Horizon 2, are our people the right people? Which ones do we need to train? Who do we need to let go? What other skills do we need to bring in? How should we reorganize? So assumptions are really, really difficult. Really difficult. And then we document the assumptions. There's not 100 of them. There's five core assumptions. This is the output of it minus the yellow boxes. So that's how it all comes together. In this... The three things to leave you with, well, first of all, we don't have a choice. This is not optional. You're in it. 
And I love, still I talk to so many business leaders and they say, well, I don't know that we want to share those. I don't think our people are saying that. Like, we don't have these internal communication systems. And I just look at them and I say, look, 100% they do. The only decision you have to make is whether or not you want to listen. And I find so many people still, it just like, they don't want to listen because sometimes reading it does not feel good, but it's happening anyway. So it's a world of nearly perfect information and even better, almost perfect liquidity of information exchange. Second thing is the traditional rules, like I'm an inventor. I started a, too many companies to even count, but boy, that's 10% of what I need to think about. Not because I'm managing a company, but because so many companies with great ideas go out of business because they can't implement it. And in today's world, it's not the internet that's done this. It's the way that the world's come together as a result of this new platform. So the way that we have to think takes as much thought as the actual vocation that we do every single day. How do we enable? And so that's the second point. And the third point is those rules are things that we invested a lot. They've worked very well for me and big teams and they've been transportable. Companies like Adobe, if anybody's followed, has probably done this the best. This is a brilliant company. And when I left Adobe, $42 was the stock price. And, you know, we always kind of want the company to crater after we leave. You know, I was one of the top five executives and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, they're going to, you know, they're a long time voluntarily. I had another thing I wanted to go do. Yeah, they're going to die. Today it's 176. <laughs> bad decision. <laughs> it was a really bad decision. But in any case, they do it brilliantly. IBM, on the other hand, this is just so beautiful. When I left IBM, because of course it's all about me, they were the third most valuable company in the world. So clearly, you know, it's, no, I'm kidding. Today, IBM is worth just about half of what Adobe is. They have over $100 billion of revenue. What the hell? They failed to make the switch. And people say, well, it's technology. Or they missed the cloud. Well, Microsoft missed the cloud. And Microsoft missed mobile. Microsoft's the number one most valuable company in the world. So, yeah, no, I don't think so. They just figured out how to operate in this new world. So these may not be your five or however many you need must-haves, your truths, the way that you run the world according to you, but you've got to have them and you've got to think about them and how they implement and execute. And with that, what I really wanted to accomplish today is just bring this up into the consciousness of the world because I think it's such a fascinating concept. And I also know, and from firsthand experience, that when you get it right, people will just the behaviors change, the speed increases. It's really exhilarating. And so I'll leave you with back to where it all started. Thomas J. Watson, founder of IBM, in 1967 said, the great accomplishments of man, he means humankind, of course, have resulted from the transmission of ideas and enthusiasm. No different than anything we've been talking about. It's just the way you implement so with that, thank you very much. Have a wonderful rest of your conference, and thanks for having me. Gary, that was uh, outstanding. Thank outstanding. Uh, Get up again. I thought that was really phenomenal. Thank you.
I had a book of questions, but I'm going to just ask you one, actually. Questioning assumptions is very hard in the context of a team. I want to give us maybe three good methods. You go into a team, you want to start questioning assumptions, you want anybody to get upset, you want anybody to feel like you know, they're yeah. challenged. What, what three take-homes do you give us? First of all, it can't be hyperbole, it can't be your opinion. Assumptions, by and large, are somebody's opinion that's validated, but they have to be foundationally validated and included with the team. And I have a really simple example that I've used at every company I've gone to. And when I showed up at Mozilla, they'd gone from 110 million users down to 72 and they were going the other way. And so I said, what's happening at the company? Well, you know, Google came in and Chrome and Google has all this reach and all this marketing and everything else. And I said, okay, so this Google's doing this to you. By the way, companies never, ever, 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 ever die of homicide. They die of suicide, <laughs> ever. <laughs> so found it. I mean, I could not prove to one company that the competitor killed them. No, they missed it and they didn't operate effectively. So I didn't say that out loud. So I said, okay, well, what is the foundation? And so you have to ask just some framing questions. There's really only three. What is it that you are trying to achieve? What do we care most about? Like, if you think about Google, they care more about search than anything else. People say, well, they bought Android. Well, because they understood that the face of search, the glass by which you're going to search through, is moving from desktop to mobile. So they wanted to own mobile. Microsoft was charging $100 for a version of Windows OS when Google made Android free. Why? Because that's what they cared about. So I just keep asking, what's the thing that you care about most? And I got a whole bunch of weird answers. I said, okay, well, help me understand what your value proposition is, our, and they said, we build the best browser with the most secure. I said, okay, let's go validate that we had an analytics team, we went out. Best is measured by, we went through all that, and, and you know, you frame this up in that depth, and it turns out this example, we came back and the way they said best is the most used. Well, clearly not the case. We had all the data. So they said, the most secure. Went out and analyzed that. We came back. We had more security breaches in the Firefox browser at that point than all the other browsers combined. And they, the third tenant was, we are the biggest contributors to the open source community. Let's go test that. We hadn't put a line of code in the open source community in three years. Google, our arch enemy, had contributed 40%, Apple 50%. So I just came back and I said, okay, we're gonna test assumptions and we're doing this in a transparent way with everybody. And I stood in front of everybody and I just presented four slides. I said, here's what we said. Here's what the data shows. And then I got the next, and it just, it changed overnight. However, there was at least 5% was like, this guy doesn't get us. It's more than that. It's a thing. It's a feeling. It's a culture. I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. But look, and you're going the wrong way. So your assumptions aren't right. Then we did some work on assumptions. We went back. What we assumed and how we were behaving didn't match. And that kicked off. And what happens at those points, Stefano, is you get the middle of the bell curve of people. Yeah, I don't know what to do. It's fine. You get the far left, the people that should be fired anyway, that pulls up resistance. And then you get the top two or three or 4%, the opinion leaders, the intellectual leaders, the notional leaders, they take up arms. Like, you know what? Damn it, we're going to change this. And then the whole company moves. One assumption exercise. So I've done that in every company that I've been in, and it's the same result. And that alignment, and then if you can put it on one slide and you can just show progress towards it, really you can take a lot of time off, at least in my world, because the machine keeps moving.
Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was outstanding. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for taking time. Thank you there. No, get out the knuckleheads. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this episode of Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and that you heard something that will trigger your curiosity and advance your digital journey. Many of the examples we bring you are outside of orthopedics, but the technologies and solutions we present are all eminently translatable to musculoskeletal care. Please consider giving us a review on your podcast platform so other people can find us. More importantly, tell a friend about our amazing community. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you. I am your host, Stefan Urbini, founder and chair of both the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco and this, the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. <laughs>